something different, something different. This way comes something, something different, something different. Welcome to my little blanket fort home recording studio. In this edition of Something Different, This Way Comes, I talk with Cheyenne Havorka. Amazing songwriter, artist, humanitarian, activist, and teacher. Our conversation at her home, she graciously invited me to visit her, and we recorded a song together. We wrote a song together, which I really, really love. Here's a, a taste of the chorus. When was the last time your feet touched the ground? When was the last time you let your heart hear the sound of skin on skin? Mother Earth pulling you in. When was the last time your feet touched the ground? Cheyenne Havorka. I'm Heather McLeod. We wrote that song and recorded it together. After having the following conversation, which was a very grounded conversation. We sat with bare feet, hooked on the rungs of high stools beside her kitchen island. By the time we wrote that song, our feet were a little bit dirtier because we'd both run out barefoot across the lawn and, and down the beaten trail toward the river. This conversation is grounded in, in our connections to here, to now to our home and the and the life that we are a part of the water the earth the air the food we eat the tools we use the clothing we choose we touched on many things in this conversation but i found it kept circling back to connections though i started by asking about hope what are hopes that spring into your heart that you'd love to see us get better at or maybe change in the world around us I honestly really truly believe that our connection to land, connection to food, connection to the forest, connection to water, to air, to fire, to everything is um, hanging by a thread. And, you know, Elder Dave Crushane, bah, like he's passed away already, um, would always say, you know, like we're coming up to the eighth fire and that we're at a crux in the world where um, we are going to either choose to get back to the land or choose the path of technology and, you know, meeting our wants instead of just our needs. Um, and he said, he said, you know, that that's a prophecy. And so it's up to us to start realizing where do we need to be in this prophecy? Cause if we, once, once we hit that road, there's no turning back. And so I know when I had my child coming up to that before, before I conceived, before we conceived as a family, I didn't know if I wanted kids and it's not because I didn't want to disrupt my life. It was because what would I be bringing a child into? That was my reason for not having a family. And then uh, we decided we did want to have a family. So we did have our little Rexy Roo, um, who who's seven going on eight this year. And, you know, I see this now as an opportunity to, to teach a young person to potentially go down that path of, you know, being with the world and respecting the world and acknowledging the plants, the animals, the air, the waters, as our brothers and sisters who have been here way longer than we have and who we can learn from. Um, so that's kind of sort of where I see things. I may have taken the question in a completely different direction, but... <laughs> I love where you took the question, because I do feel like that's a journey. It's hard to realize how unrooted you are until you start mindfully reconnecting with the land that you live on, trying to realize that we don't live outside of this planet. We're not somehow unrelated to it and just able to draw from it, but we're we're the younger sisters and, and brothers to a very ancient and um, well-functioning system that that nourishes us and that we can learn so much from this is kind of how i see it humans because we've been here only like what 20 30 40 50 000 years 
really seems like a long time. It's not very long time. So we are really the two, three-year-olds running around on the planet. And if you think of the mindset of a two, like a toddler, they're very self-centered and very, this is my world and everything revolves around me. And that is humanity right now. We perceive the world as something that needs to give to us. You know, all the resources that we're extracting and the forests that we're using, it is for us. And really, when you think of the toddler, it's very comparable in a lot of ways. Instead of thinking about the world as something we can take and use because it's there for us, what are we doing to work with? What are we doing to learn from? That's the perspective I'm trying to instill on the the students I get to work with in my day-to-day life and, you know, obviously my child as well. But it's a long battle because you see, you know, it makes me think of this one teenager I ran into once, like they were staying with us for a few days. I said, you know what, let's make some French fries. And so I grabbed some potatoes and they were like, French fries come from potatoes. I'm like, yeah. They're like, no, I'm not eating those. I'm like, but that's how you make French fries. They're from potatoes. And then we got into like that hole that that grows in the ground and like, cause we had harvested those potatoes. I'm like, and if we run out, we can just go get some more. And they were absolutely disgusted that we would go outside and dig these things out of the ground and wash them up and cut them up and serve them to eat. <laughs> like I was mind blown, but it also, cause this was like 20 years ago. It freaked me out too. Cause I was just like, how disconnected are our kids in understanding just our food source just our food source and really not even um, contemplating that every little thing that we see and physically can touch has come from the earth on some level like my glass of water the glass came from the resources extracted from the planet so that I get to have this glass it's not just this random thing that just magically shows up in the store and but you know the younger generation lots of them don't connect that so it's it it blows my mind I remember when I was uh, nursing and both hands were busy I'd watch that show how things are made and after a while I got really tired of things starting to be made in the factory Where did all the elements that get assembled in a factory come from? Right? So, and okay, now here's another um, politically charged perspective, thought, um, belief. You know, like I, I, um, I have this wolf jacket that I made myself from wolves that are local. These wolves had to be destroyed because they were pegging off somebody's farm. To honor the pelts and the loss of life, I had those tanned and I turned it into a coat that I stitched together by hand. So there's two ways of looking at it. Someone who doesn't know the backstory, they're like, oh my goodness, she killed a bunch of wolves. Like, or why is she wearing a wolf jacket when, you know, there's perfectly good jackets to buy from the stores. But my thought is how many animals and plants and water and environments and ecosystems were displaced to extract the resources to make that synthetic jacket because the six wolves that had to be killed is really nothing in comparison to the footmark of the other jacket like the synthetic store-bought jacket so it's it's about like don't judge me until you've understood my perspective of this because there's always a bigger picture to it no, I didn't just go and shoot a wolf so I could have this cool jacket, which is actually quite warm, not cool. But (laughs) But that's also a huge part to me of of a kinder economy is assuming everybody's trying their best. Mm -hmm. You know, start with a positive, respectful conversation and consciously work against our current tendency to condemn, to kind of win conversations. Because, I don't know, I feel like, this is my latest thing. That was not a conversation. It was another condemnation of thought. Like, I can't handle them anymore. I want more listening and less opinions because we can learn from each other. And only when we give each other space to kind of talk through our thinking, might we shift some of that thinking and learn from each other more instead of dividing each other more. 
I think a lot of our strongest opinions sort of come to us emotionally and they come to us from the patterns around us and they you can really adhere to them if you challenge them. So creating spaces where we can grow and broaden our understanding of the world and have a little more faith in one another, it, it takes effort. But I would love to see that effort being made. And that's, that's the key, is the effort being made. Because it's easy to say something, it's easy to have a thought and a judgment, and it's easy to spew it out. It's a lot more work to do your homework and ask the questions and maybe contemplate. Like, I wonder why that person said that. I wonder why that person does that. Because when you consider the background, it completely changes the context of the thought that you may have had to start with. And the other thing that that your story about the true cost of things that might be on sale in the mall is, um, I forget the dude's name, but I'll I'll put the reference afterwards. I'll dig it up again. But he was an award-winning chemist who's now one of the leaders in what they're calling green chemistry. And his light bulb moment was, I mean, chemistry is a natural phenomenon. If we pay attention to how Mother Nature applies chemistry, we can not only do whatever we want chemistry to do, but we can do it in a way that Mother Nature has figured out is not harmful to the web of life. And so this whole science he'd been a part of had that backwards. The world of, of chemistry had been, what can we smash together, heat up, combine, that nobody has created before, and only once we've found a way to stick things together that for whatever reason chose never to be combined in the past, then we'll look for a way to use it. And only once it's been used for a long time, might somebody have to work really hard to point out that that wasn't a good idea to combine those two things. It has some other unintended side effect. And literally, generations of chemists had never thought to think, I'm not inventing chemistry. Who is the real master here? And what more could I learn if I just were patient, made space, had questions, and learned from other nature? So to me, that's, that's, that's like the toddler learning from the grandmother and learning to be quiet and watch and start to observe to learn instead of imposing to learn at any rate. Well, and that, that lead, leads me to when we are listening, don't think, mm. just listen. And let the listening continue before you put your own thinking in. Because as soon as we start thinking about it, we start putting our own background knowledge into things. Like Elder Dave Kershane once said, like, the best learning you can do, just go hug a tree. Go find a tree and hug it and feel that love from Mother Earth. It'll calm you and allow it to speak to you. Like not obviously physically, but as you're holding that tree, you will feel something and it does transcend into every part of your being. When you hug that tree, all of a sudden you realize like it's it's a life. And you know, from the Anishinaabe uh, perspective, we even think about language. Um, and I know we weren't talking about Anishinaabe, but it just popped in my head and I just feel like I need to say this. In English, it's a tree, it's a carrot, it's a bird, it's a moose, they're it's. It's like an inanimate, almost inanimate thing, even though they're very animate. Whereas in Anishinaabe, he is a tree, she is a tree, she is the bird, she is a carrot. And it brings life and respect into the life that we're sharing with, right? Um, And, you know, when you start thinking of all living things, plant, animal, insect, as he's and she's instead of it's, it kind of, you know, gives you a new perspective on on that animal or a creature like even spiders when we find spiders in the house we don't kill them we bring them outside like even like centipedes and stuff you don't not that we have a lot of centipedes but the odd one you find and my instinct is to like and i'm like you know this centipede belongs outside it is not my job to end its life because it's in here because whose life am i intruding in on right now living with my house here So it's like, do I kill it or do I just put it outside? Mm -hmm. So I put it outside. Are you still teaching as well? Sort of. I work in education. Um, I'm no longer in the classroom. So now I'm working strictly with Indigenous education and infusing Indigenous education into classrooms. 
because I think a lot about education. Before I had kids, I daydreamed of being that wealthy, privileged mom who could just teach their kids. And the first thing I figured out shortly after becoming a mom, that just me being a teacher is not enough. We're all meant to have many teachers. And the second thing was that I just couldn't pull it off. So my kids went into school, and they've had amazing teachers, but the system itself is not an amazing place in which to grow as a full human being and, and learn. There's so many ways I wish we fed our children real food and gave them a chance to socialize differently and more broadly in their days and their schools. I wish there were just more human beings teaching and, and learning with them in those formative hours and years in schools. And I wish it they touched dirt more often, that it wasn't such a, a segregated experience from the broader world. So what are your thoughts about if you could imagine and really radical change that ticked all your boxes about a lovely way for young humans to, to grow up learning. What comes to your mind? Well, if I go backwards a little bit first, and you think about when education actually started, it was to produce people who could work in factories and build things and make things and your doctors and your lawyers. So it was literally just like spewing people out with the knowledge to do this, these various things that society needed. And the ingrained habit of obedience and conformity. Exactly. But education now is shifting in, in its perspective, like, well, no, that doesn't really work for everybody. And then how is that inclusive of different people's ways of being, ways of knowing, uh, ethnic backgrounds, spiritual beliefs, uh, knowledge belief systems, and all of that stuff. So you can see this transformation happening in education where people are considering like what what does it mean to be inclusive what does it mean to have land-based learning what does it mean to have cultural understanding and so those are the big questions now how do you look at science through the indigenous lens and I'm, I'm using that as an example because of my ancestry and you know my passions and how do you meld that into this system where you're still following the curriculum and you can there's brilliant ways to do it as long as you're honoring the people that have the knowledge, right? And ensuring that we're appreciating, not appropriating it. I just want to throw that in there. But at the same time, there's so much. And so for me, as as somebody who identifies as, as an Anishinaabekwe, and like an Ojibwe woman, I want my son to grow up that way. But I also can't expect a school system who is trying very, very hard to meet the needs of all children, and not all of them are Indigenous. I can't expect them to teach, you know, you can go harvest some red willow and use that as a toothbrush and use it to fight gingivitis. Or you can take some balsam bark, you know, you can use it as a band-aid or as like a painkiller or some willow tea to like calm anxiety down and also as a painkiller. Or you can, you're hungry in the bush, there's some fiddleheads and some dandelions and some plantains and whatever else. There's like, creator gives you everything you need within walking distance if you know what you're looking for. Um, And I can't expect the school system to be able to do that. So it's this healthy balance then where we also have to realize like as parents in society that we cannot depend on the education system to teach a child everything. So when you said there are many teachers, it's not just the classroom teacher. They're important, they're pivotal in that learning, the reading, the writing, and they're doing their best. And I know they're doing their best, but there's also as parents, aunties, uncles, grandparents, neighbors, community, there's all those other opportunities to learn. So like my son, he goes to school every day and he's doing great. He's got his friends, he's doing social. And then he comes home and then we do my land learning. Like we walk through the bush for like an hour every day and uh, examine what's growing, what's dying, what kind of snow do we have, the moon cycles, all of those things. And we talk about the importance of all things. But that's my responsibility, not the school's responsibility. And I can't expect the school to be able to do that. So it's this, this balance of understanding that, yes, there is the school system. And yes, they're doing their best. And like the system is changing. So it's not just like a spewing out of workers. We're trying to build human beings. And that's the key. We are trying to allow human beings to blossom and give them the skills they need to blossom. And then when they go home, who else is watering them and feeding them 
and giving them the other pieces that they're not going to get at the school. I love that idea of blossoming. I feel like what we have been hungering for and scratching and fighting for has not led to a blossoming of us. So our children need more. And it's a, it's a certain respect for their needs and their attention that you seem to be describing to me, as well as more people in their lives to teach from and learn with them. That segregation that, that saddens me in many children's lives where they only see kids their own age and they're only ever told what to do most of the time or left to be out of the way other parts of the day being able to give them more centrality in our communities, I think would be a beautiful thing. But also for all of us, that it's as valuable to give yourself an hour a day to walk in the bush and mindfully notice what's happening there as an important thing. Right? Like, okay, so you said so many things and I had so many thoughts in my head. I was like, Um, but like, it would be so easy for me, we're busy. And like, I don't know what, especially now coming out of COVID, it just seems like everything's just like, like a mile a minute. And by the end of the day, I'm tired. I'm sure you're tired. And every, any person who's listening is just like, I'm done work. I'm tired. I just want to sit down, get supper dealt with, and then go to bed. And you got the kids running around and the dogs want to get and the chickens are balking. If you have chickens and garden needs to be watered, it would be so easy for me to say like, you can go on your iPad because I know he wants to do that. And then I could just like pluck away at the things that need to be done and feel like I'm not being bothered. But my responsibility as the creator of life, of giving this being life, like that's a gift from creator. I am going to trust you to raise this human. So I'm going to put this human in your belly. Do your best. Now it's up to you. So I, I think about that often when I'm like, I am so busy and I just want to let him go on the iPad so I can just like, you know, but it's like, no, no, I was given this blessing and a responsibility to raise a human being. So no, I am not going to let him go on the iPad, maybe 10, 15 minutes here and there, but no, then we're going to go outside and we're going to get our hands dirty. We're going to go for a walk. And he does, he helps me in the garden. He helps me with the chickens. He helps with like walk the dogs. That's when we have our best discussions and our talks. The most beautiful thing, that he said to me this past weekend was, so I just asked, what did you do to, in school today? You know, mom, at recess, I meditated. I'm like, oh, you meditated. Yep. I used to like playing in the, on the playground, but uh, where he goes to school, they also have access to bush. It's a rural school. And so him and his buddies, they all like to go play in the bush line where they're allowed to play. He's like, yeah, I just felt like sitting by a tree. So I went into the trees and I found a spot to sit and I just meditated the entire recess. I just sat there, mom, and I just breathed. And that was, the, that was the highlight of his day. And I'm like, how often do we allow our children to just be? Because I'm thinking like, we got our organized sports. We've got our eight to five, you know, eight to four, whatever your day looks like, where the kids in school and or in childcare, like before and after school, and then your piano, and then you got your life stuff and this and that. But when, when do we, when do we allow ourselves to be? in nature in a peaceful mindset when do we allow our children to have 15 minutes to meditate by a tree when do we do that like there's no time for that anymore and I was just like oh my goodness here's this little seven-year-old who's like finding the time on his own to breathe in nature on his own accord The other vision I have that I'm, I'm thinking of, we as a, as a species have really uh, impacted the earth, right? Mm-hmm. So the wild around here has been harvested in so many ways and weakened by our choices. And we continue to impose those choices across the whole broad swath. You can drive through and feel like, oh, look at all that beautiful wilderness, but it is very impacted wilderness. So one of the calls for us to get through the climate crisis and other greater extremes that we've cooked into our near future is to give back to Mother Nature and allow wildness to be wild 
stop imposing our sprayed chemicals and our harvest-ready bush management and our, you know, managed waterways and all the things that we do for very narrow reasons that have broad impacts we've not been owning. And the more we pay attention to those broader impacts, the more we go, oh, right, Mother Nature had it right the first time around. And we can probably do this without that infrastructure control-based way of doing things. So for each of us, that's a huge switch in our mindset, like you said, from, you know, how can I extract this thing that's separate from me and manage and control it so that I feel like I've won some kind of a... Remember when they used to teach us about literature and it was man versus nature or man versus man? And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. The really good stories are not about conflict. They're about collaboration. And they're not about victory. They're about respect and learning. Oh man, I'm talking a lot here. Anyway, so the vision I have is that each of us in our lives have more growing plants and animals in our day-to-day interactions. Even if it's taking the bit of lawn and figuring out how to make a strip of it be boreal wilderness that it's still got the memory of, and we can live with a little less lawn. But maybe we can give the bush a bit more of the city. If you're imagining a, a future... Like, how, how does that spring up in you? Well, as far as like land, um, I will be the first to admit that we are privileged to have it, right? Because uh, then I think about like uh, places like in India where people are stacked on one another, or even Toronto for that matter. Let's call a spade a spade here. Like there's little parks that, you know, thousands of people share that same little piece of nature because they're stacked on top of each other. And um when I lived in Seoul, Korea, like that was the one thing that really got to me was just, it was just cement. And I felt like an ant in an anthill that was just, or a cow in a herd that was just getting pushed along. And I was like, wow, there are a lot of people on this planet. And I never, like I always knew it, but I didn't really connect it until I was in it. And I was like, how, 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 how are we supporting everybody and everything? And uh, because I'm privileged and I have land, yes, I have a huge garden and a fall garden and an asparagus garden and beds and this and that, right? And not everybody can do that. But to your point, we can all make a choice to do something with what we do have access to. If you're living in Toronto, and I know lots of people that get some pots and some dirt and they grow some food, that's something, right? Or maybe not cutting down all the dandelions that first thing that they're popping on you saw my yard right it's full of dandelions and before you know it those paintbrushes are going to come up and we just allow them to grow that's a tough one though because not everybody can and not everybody will have the skills the knowledge or the resources to be able to do it and how I've sort of mitigated that myself is like with what I do know I share as much as I can knowledge-wise. I plant a bunch of stuff for people. I grow stuff for people. Like they're like, oh, could you grow me 10, 15 garlic? Yeah, absolutely, I'll pop it in for you. And I don't charge. Or if there's somebody that's starting to get out, like just starting to garden, I'll help them. Okay, no, no, don't grow 100 plants. I guarantee you, you're gonna struggle and it'll be a really bad experience. Let's start with five things that you like. Walk them through like what it means to grow those five things and help them plant them and find the space because there's you can find space and then finding the symbiotic relationships between different plants because not all plants get along just like not all humans get along and they can't grow beside each other so it's like that understanding of growing things and caring for things is also understanding their relationships with each other or like how can you maximize like the three sisters garden with the beans the corn and the the squash what is the symbiotic relationship? Why does that work? And we start re- realizing that these there, there, there's all these relationships in nature itself. Totally off topic, but I just thought it was like the coolest thing when I learned this is like aphids. Ants, get this, ants farm aphids. So if you plant an aphid-loving plant near an anthill, you are almost guaranteed to get aphids Because as soon as one shows up and those ants figure out that they farm them and they encourage their growth and they protect the aphids because they like that that sweet stuff that the aphids leave behind. So they don't hurt the aphids. They take care of them. 
They, they, they're farming them. And so when you think about the intelligence of that, and it's like, well, I wish you'd leave my peas alone, but like, that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. So next year, I'm just going to plant my peas somewhere else, <laughs> away from that anthill. But I mean, when you think about it, out like get, getting past the loss of your entire crop of peas, it's a beautiful thing. And, and there's a lot of, well, there's two things I, going on. And one is sort of shifting our understanding of what, what makes life beautiful and makes us blossom. And it's those kinds of learning things, like that ants farm aphids. How can that not make you happy? But we love to learn. It, it opens us and, and satisfies us. And we love to help one another. We love to produce things that are useful, feed our families. So if those are really what make us bloom, and if we were to shift so that that was what we were all trying to accomplish more of, what would our communities look like? It could be such a change, right? It wouldn't be about the size of a house or how even a lawn is. It's about what you have to teach, who you've been able to help, what you've got to share as uh, learning or as bounty, as opposed to this sense of there being winners and losers in life. It's more of a collaborative community. That's what I imagine us moving back towards. And and you think about Indigenous cultures pre-colonialism, um, that's exactly how it was. There wasn't one teacher. Everybody was a teacher. And then you would look at the children and you'd start seeing their gifts coming out naturally and then you hone those gifts so not everybody's learning the same thing and then well what do you want to be but we're like teaching the kids all to be the same whereas an indigenous culture pre-colonialism it was no no we're not teaching them all the same you know what this kid really has a knack for aim they're a hunter this kid really has a knack for like finding uh identifying plants that's your medicine medicine keeper you know and so on and so forth right and then the external community that had those skills would start working with those kids so it's the kids that are showing those skills and then the community watching the kids and waiting for the gifts that those innate gifts that creator gave each person individually to come out and hone those gifts and guide that child so that child can use their gifts in a good way that's going to benefit the community and the environment that they're in and i would i would love for education to move that direction but that how would that even be such a profound change it it wouldn't be possible in the structure that we have today it just wouldn't be possible but if we're really wanting to save the environment and I really don't know if we can. I really don't know if we can. I have to stop there. This moment, this moment in the conversation was the one that rang out in my heart ever since. We, we, we met in July. It's been months now. And although there were so many interesting things we talked about and touched upon, it was that tone, that note, that word of despair that most struck me like a gong. It just keeps resonating in my heart. I wish I could solve it. I wish I could, I could resolve it and give her assurance and certainty that we will be okay, that we will save this environment. But you know what, she's, she's, uh, I don't think she's alone in dancing with despair. I think a lot of us have that tone resonating in our hearts, and it's a heavy weight. It's hard to push forward for hope when you feel that despair in your heart. But that is something Cheyenne clearly does. The despair that she voices there is, is not reflected in her choices at all. Uh, she's such a power force for positivity, for doing things right and bothering to do things. Um, so I don't want to stop forever here. This is not the point. But I just need to give it a moment to sink in. I hear despair ringing, ringing. Sing in your heart 
deep dark pool of dread Ringing, singing, I feel despair Singing, singing, ringing your heart down To the deep dark pool of despair I want to throw her that rope of hope that rope of hope and pull her up, but that's not the way despair works. It's more of an infiltration than something somebody else can can fish you out of. And, uh, and you have to honor it. Much as it bothers me, much as it worries me, I have to honor it. So we went back to our conversation. I left that note of that despair, that, that worry, that all that we're doing is so not enough and we're headed for disaster. I let that just stay in the spaces in our conversation. And we kept on chatting. We only chatted for a minute or two more past that point, though, before the dog barked. And, and as soon as she heard the tone in the dog's voice, Cheyenne stopped our conversation, slipped off her stool, ran outside barefoot, and across the the sun-soaked warm lawn into the cool shade of the trees and down a well-beaten, even softer path, I could hear the river roaring to our left, but I couldn't see it. She wanted to make sure everyone was okay, that the dog wasn't barking because it wanted to convey something, uh, a worry. And before I caught up with her, she'd gotten her reassurance, husband's okay, child is okay, dogs are okay, we're all okay. And we walked back up the path and across that hot lawn and into the cool kitchen and back to our glasses of water and our conversation. And then for the uh, root cellar, like we just used the same buckets over and over and over and the same sand over and over. Like we dumped the potatoes out, the sand gets bleached by the sun and washed by the rain. And then in the fall, we just use the same sand in the same buckets. So for 10 years, we've had potatoes, carrots and beets in the root cellar and didn't have to buy anything, anything to have that because we're reseeding our own potatoes. We reseed our carrots and then same with like your cucumbers and stuff. So we save those seeds and we replant them. So as I got all this stuff happening and now I'm giving it to the school, it's a fundraiser, but we don't have set prices. That's like, take what you want to take and pay what you feel like you, you want to pay. The thought process behind that is not everybody can afford, right? And the people that can most often give more and it always balances out. So it's like, why can't we do that with everything? Mm-hmm. Because then think about all like the, the, the garbage that wouldn't be wasted if, you know, like that person who normally can maybe only afford mac and cheese, like the cheap stuff and all the trash that's assembling. So they, they took maybe 10 tomato plants and 10 cucumber plants and gave $5 because that's what they could. How much food is that though for them? And then if you teach them how to harvest those seeds and replant that next year in those margarine containers that were going to get thrown out, like if 10 people did that, yeah. how much garbage is being saved with those 10 people? But what I love is all the levels of thinking going on here. How many ways can I encourage positive things to happen, right? And trust that if we give it a chance, probably the good alternative is going to be what mostly unfolds. I think that is contagious, that willingness to just see what happens if we let people pay what they can and see what happens if we ask everybody to just bring in yogurt containers. The teaching of that. Yeah. And like, so this is our second year doing it and it's like doubled. In, in size so and it's it's a lot of work to keep all those plants alive because then it's also that and so we're getting the students involved now like uh, my greenhouse was too full so I told the principal I have to bring half the plants over because like I, I just don't have space but I'll teach those kids how to take care of these plants and that's what's needed the kids the kids need to a understand where food comes from but also understand that they're living things that need love, that need caring, that need water, and not living things, living beings. They are living beings that need attention. They need to be brought outside. They need to feel the wind and the sun on their leaves. They need to have that water. They need sometimes to get a bigger pot. So let's find a bigger margarine container than the little yogurt container they're in. And I'll show you how to properly put them into the next container 
they need some food. Look, their, their leaves are turning yellow. They don't have enough food. So what can we do to give them some food? So it's all those different things. And so what's really cool too is for food, me and my crazy. So you know I have chickens and I have a garden, so I obviously have weeds. We have turned that into manure tea and weed tea. And so like we just save the weeds and save the manure, put water in a bucket, like reused buckets, put a lid on it and let it rot. And it stinks. Oh my goodness, it stinks so, so, so bad. And then we just put a couple cups of that into some water, dilute it with like regular water. And we feed our plants that one week it's weed tea and the next week it's the manure tea. And holy smokes, you don't need anything else. That's all you need. I use the weeds to feed my garden. (laughs) And it works all the time. And yeah, I'm sure that those weeds don't want to be killed for that. And I I often think about that like, because it's not that they're just growing there. They're living there. Then I fall into this slippery slope where I'm like, Cheyenne, not everything can live in your garden. <laughs> like the slugs too. You're just like, I know that they want to live here. I don't want them to live here. So where can I help them live somewhere else? <laughs> like, just say so I go the other way. I go that the, that the earth is obviously very generous, right? Because we pick the, the cucumbers and we don't plant all the seeds. And she thinks in terms of bounty. And as long as we're grateful and reasonable, we don't take more than then can be replenished it's okay that's my thinking and i take the slugs and i feed them to the chickens that's what i do well we let the chickens go into the garden <laughs> so then i don't see it happen it's just like which i don't think is any better it's the whole blind eye thing like right? but just if I you have a softer heart than me but yeah it's just like then you have to like understand balance to like well if i let the slugs take over it's really not helping anything but the slugs so where's that balance so i'm going to help balance by sending the chickens in to eat the slugs because the chickens need to eat and the other critters need to eat then snakes and and mice like mice i don't really love at all but we get snakes like nests every year in our composters and people are freaked out you open up the lid and all these snakes come out and i'm like no no it's great They are eating the mice and they're eating all of the things in the garden that I don't want to be there and they need to eat it. As soon as we had like these nests show up, all of a sudden the mice weren't a problem anymore because there were days where I'd go out onto the side deck there and one day there'd be this beautiful zucchini, beautiful like foot long, I'll just leave it, I'll pick it tomorrow. And then I went out the next day, it's white, all the skin's gone. The mice came at night and they just ate all the skin off of the the this zucchini that was one but i can imagine this collaborative party like like a giant corn on the cob or something <laughs> just eating it all. yeah and then i that night i looked out at the other garden the salad garden and i had this random broccoli growing in there so instead of killing i just let it grow and i looked i'm like what's and it was dark like late dusk not dark dark yet but so close to being dark and uh like there's something hanging. There's a few things hanging off that. What? Like they look like little monkeys. And I put my glasses on. I'm like, oh my goodness, there's like six mice hanging <laughs> from the broccoli plant <laughs> outside no. my window. <laughs> like I'm like, okay, we can't share space this close. <laughs> like you guys gotta go live somewhere else. <laughs> so I, instead of killing them and setting a bunch of traps, I'm like, it's fall. We have all the food that we need. So I thanked all the plants for giving what they could, put my tobacco down, and and then I pulled all the plants from around the house and the zucchinis and the cucumbers and the broccoli. I mean, it's almost October, not gonna get much more. And then the mice were gone because there was nothing for them to eat. Let's talk about bare feet. Bare feet. Oh, I love my bare feet. <laughs> well, I don't actually love the look of my feet. They're, they're feet, right? <laughs> they're pretty standard foot. But I don't feel like people take the time to let their feet or their hands touch the grass, touch the dirt. And uh, so in the summertime, like it's, it's like, no, I, I'm, I'm running around on my bare feet because I can. Yeah, they get the odd sliver or you step on a rock the wrong way and it's like, ee! But there's studies that show that the people who um, allow their skin to touch the ground, like it does something to their their whole chemistry. There's a chemistry again, right? That whole chemistry. And I think it's deeper than that. It's like when you think of a baby when they're born and they touch their mom, 
that skin to skin is like necessary for that baby. But who's our mother? Like intrinsically, who is humanity's mother? The earth is our mother. So why wouldn't we want to be skin to skin with her? And that's so it's it's not just chemistry. That is love. That is the energy of our collective mother saying, it's so nice to touch you and feel you and hug you and love you. And I, I just think like more people need to like be okay with letting their feet touch the grass. And I've seen this in Toronto with people who are not in the bush all the time and don't have that opportunity. And there's a patch of grass and there's a sidewalk. They follow the sidewalk. They'll take the long way around. I don't know the rationale. Is it because they're more comfortable on the sidewalk or maybe they don't want to step on the grass because there's not much of it? Or maybe there's rules against, I don't know, because I'm from the bush. But uh, I don't think, and again, this is an assumption, that the general population have enough time to feel their mother. And and I want to think about that for a moment. Because I do feel like there's an important courage to be found in thinking of the earth as her mother and thinking of the generosity of being able to get all that you need from her and not needing to take it. It is a gift. And as a gift, it needs to be respected and reciprocated with care and honoring. You put tobacco down when you harvest the last of the of the food out of your garden in the fall. Um, and also to understand that this earth has deepened and deepened in life over many millennia, longer certainly than we've been a part of that life. But even in the tens of thousands of years of people being part of the citizens of the planet, many have chosen to find ways to live with Mother Earth that is a deepening of life. So they look at places where First Nations have lived for a long time, and when those people are taken away from those places, some some plants start disappearing because the relationship between the people and the plants is inherent. There's a care that goes both ways. So I'd love to imagine us all finding a way to consider our relationship to this planet as a as an obligation and a joy and an honor, not just to be a burden on this planet, but to have the opportunity to be a child to this planet that is a joy to our mother. So that made me think of the, have you ever read Braiding Sweetgrass? So there's that part where she talks about the sweetgrass and how it thrives where it's harvested, like respectfully harvested. And then where it hasn't been harvested, it's starting to get choked out. So there is that relationship. But then it also made me think of, I don't know if you've read this study, and I could try to find it and pass it on to you, but there was this study in like grizzly bears and bears in, in BC. And there was like three distinct DNA streams in the in these bears. They couldn't figure it out, like why? Why were these this DNA very specific to these boundaries? Because there was nothing environmentally and then they figured out that indigenous languages specific to these three areas were connected to the dna of the bears that lived in those areas it was the indigenous languages that somehow affected the dna of the bear because they were the same species of bear So there's such a profound evidence of a long relationship that goes both ways. Yes. And then I think about, you know, when I think about the language part of it. So if you're familiar with, with Anishinaabe, for instance, the knowledge of the land and the knowledge of our belief system and knowledge structures is actually built into the language itself. So for instance, like... Um, Anishinaabe language is 80% verbs, 20% nouns, and English is like vice versa-ish. And so when you actually pull apart parts of a word, each word is actually a verb that tells you something. And so for plants, for example, when you see the word mishki in a word, that means medicine. If you see the word tig in it, that's like some kind of tree, mitig, like a, like a stemmed thing, or misqua, which is red. And so if you get the word red medicine stick then it is actually telling you something about that plant. Or if it's a, like a mushki, like the 
the bog. So it'll tell you where it's from. Or if it has the word manadu in it, like with the word spirit, it's actually poison. Like, you know, you, you can't eat this without a reaction of some sort. When you understand the language, you actually are gaining an immense amount of other knowledge held through the language. It's just funny because like when I talk to my son about this, when we're going on our walks, he says to me one day, he's like, well, what will happen to the land when the language dies? That really got me to think like, what will happen to the land if the language dies? Because we won't understand it in that same perspective. Like that's going to die with the language and that connection too, right? Because like when you start seeing that, the name of that plant in a different way, it changes how we look at that mm-hmm. and how we interact with that plant, right? So I'm like, what will happen when we don't realize that that Labrador tea is a tea and a medicine or that willow can give us more than just whatever people use willow for, <laughs> right? Um, but, uh, or that birch bark that, you know, like there's, it'll heal a broken arm faster than a cast. And it's sunscreen, like the white powder, you can use it as sunscreen. And like, what else does the birch bark? You, like you make the birch bark baskets and those like, that's, you can store stuff in there and it's components within the birch bark is actually like a antibacterial. So it's like, it's more than just a cool basket. Birch bark is more than just birch bark. But when you understand the language, like different, different aspects of this is actually built into. So it's like, if you know the word, you know more than the word. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't know, just, uh, I think we need to like, uh, take a step back from all the dingy, shiny things that are trying to get our attention. Yeah. And reevaluate what success means. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. And like, what does it mean to be successful? Does it mean that you're making a three figure salary? Is that success? Is that how we're measuring success as a, as a society or who's got the fanciest car or the best haircut or the fanciest clothes or the most up-to-date anything? What, right. Or is it happiness? Is it the ability to be self-sustainable without the six digits and the fancy everything? Security and health and community. Yeah. And I I just think we sometimes have it backwards as to what success is. And we need to reevaluate that and bring in the creative because with the creative is the love, is the, the, the connection. And I think if we do, we could maybe still save this planet. I think that's the heart of the revolution is daring to put the really important stuff first yes i don't really have a comment for that <laughs> well let's try to write a song okay i'll stop the recording Cheyenne Havorka is a songwriter, a recording artist, a singer. She lives near Nipigon, Ontario. That's about an hour and a half down the road, down the Trans-Canada Highway from my home here in Thunder Bay. And that is where we met for that conversation. Cheyenne's also a teacher, as we talked about a bit, but boy, was it ever evident in how she would just reach out for information that came to her mind and shared it so generous with me. She's just a teacher through and through, and what what a gift that is. I love it when that's how a conversation rolls. And I really enjoyed our time together talking, but I enjoyed even more the moments that followed when we, as quickly as we could, wrote the following song. It was already supper time. And, you know, the family was gathering, ready to, to see that food was getting prepared. And I had stayed longer than I had intended. So we quickly threw our heads together and thought about that race outside in our bare feet. And also about this conversation about connections and the, the power and the importance of investing in and giving time to and space and respect to our connections, to this life we are a part of. All these living things who's doing what they do helps allow us to do what we do. We're all interconnected and interreliant. Although, to be fair, the planet could chug along without us. We couldn't chug along without this planet. So, those were the thoughts as well as the conversation about language and the Anishinaabe language as a teacher and a holder 
of connection and perspective that is so rich and valuable that she shared in this conversation. And we came up with this song. When was the last time your feet touched the ground? When was the last time you let your heart hear the sound of skin on skin? Mother Earth pulling you in When was the last time your feet touched the ground? When was the last time you let spirit in? When was the last time you opened your heart to the wind? Let skin touch skin. Mother Earth pulling you in. When was the last time you let spirit in? Diana Vorka and I, Heather McLeod, wrote and recorded that song back in July. If you love her beautiful voice and her way with music, you should really be in Thunder Bay in January for a concert with Cheyenne Vorka and Original Music and the Thunder Bay Symphony Orchestra. It's going to be amazing. I will have a link to the concert site in the podcast notes, and also a link to her website. You'll find some videos with other songs that she's composed and, and co-composed and recorded as videos. And she also has a blog about gardening, which, as you can see, is a passion and something she is a great teacher and the subject of. You'll also find in the show notes lyrics and chords to Touch the Ground, the song that we just played for you. You have to find that, though, at www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca. It's not on every podcast's homepage. You have to go to my homepage. And also there you'll find links to that green chemist whose name I couldn't recall. I looked it up. It's Paul Anastas, by the way. I put in links to a couple of videos I just really found hit right on the head where I wanted to go and and are so worth your time if you have 15 minutes to listen to them. I think you'll be glad of it. I've also got a link to Elder Dave Cruchet's Turtle Lodge in Winnipeg. Cheyenne mentioned him a few times, so I, I checked him out and found that, and I think you should check it out too. I do put out a weekly email. I call it my newsletter. During this season, it gives you a bit of a look ahead, a bit of behind the scenes. And you can sign up for that at the website, which is www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca. Also there, you could make a contribution. If you'd like to help me make this show happen, that's an amazing way to show your support, and I really appreciate it. I also appreciate a great review. Five-star review? Man, amazing. Or just to recommend it to a friend. I'm Heather McLeod, and I'm so glad you joined me today. Something different this way comes something. 
something different, something different, something different. This way comes something, something different, something different.